So we've arrived at after. It's the 2022 to 2023 school year, and the resurgence of hashtag Black at SMU in 2020 lives in hindsight. Over the past episodes, we've learned about the adjustment and maladjustment of Southern Methodist University. So, if you've been listening, now we know that racism is foundational to our institution. It was literally written into our founding. And as Professor Ray Jordan said in the first episode, words that I keep coming back to, how you start a thing is as important, if not more important, than how you end a thing. But let's go against that for a moment. Let's go against everything that this podcast stands for and ignore history for a second. Instead, let's examine our present and our future. SMU is a predominantly white institution, or a PWI. This term describes that a majority of an institution is white, and it usually alludes to historical whiteness, which is kind of a euphemism for segregation. SMU is currently invested in cultivating a more diverse and equitable community, and I truly believe that we're making progress. If I didn't, this podcast would not exist. However, Let's assess our present through the eyes of Dr. King. He wished all men of goodwill would be maladjusted until the good society is realized. And I feel like we've covered a lot of ground on that quote. We have talked about men of goodwill. We've talked about what being maladjusted could look like in the past and present. But one thing that we have to explore more deeply is the good society until the good society is realized. So when you close your eyes and imagine what a liberated good society would look like, is SMU there? Or does the good society not have space for institutions like SMU at all? Today, I'm gonna give you some tools to help you decide for yourself. My name is Shara Jayaraja, I'm a human rights fellow at SMU, and this is Maladjusted. Being an SMU Mustang to me means that you adopted the whole spirit of the place and love the campus. Athletics is an important part of this in my life. I think it's a very strong There are some things in our nation and the world which I'm proud to be maladjusted, which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. I had the opportunity to talk to so many incredible people through this podcast, and many of the people that I interviewed mentioned that their time at SMU informed their advocacy. Here's Angel Sanders, a black student activist from the late 60s and early 70s. World changers shaped here. I love that slogan. I love that motto because it's true. My activism was formed at SMU. I didn't intend for that to happen. I never dreamed it would happen. But a fire was lit in me on that campus. And I learned that 
through my puny efforts, my little individual efforts, as small as they were, could change some things. And you, when you realize that, it's so empowering. That's a lovely and empowering framing of the trials of being a Black student in the early years of desegregation at SMU. But it's also important to consider that that's just one framing, and that's not universal. Here's the voice of Jessica Pires-Jankosi, who's a more recent SMU alum and a member of Multicultural Greek Life. When I was a student, especially my freshman and sophomore years, I often wished that I was at more progressive universities. For example, my mom lives in St. Louis. I wish that I was at WashU where so many of my friends were because you know, everyone's super liberal, everyone's really progressive. There's like a ton of Asian students on campus. Um, and I'm Indian, so I was like, yes, Indians, representation. But as I went through my time at SMU, I realized that A, being in an environment like SMU made my skills sharper because I was operating in an environment that was actively working against me as opposed to one like WashU that might seem like it was working with me, but you know, it kind of deceives you, it lulls you into complacency, I think. But the longer that I was at SMU and the more that I learned just about higher education in general, I realized that for students of color, particularly if you're from a low-income background or if you're first generation, Places of higher education just weren't made for us. No matter where we are, we have to fight and we have to overcome a lot of shit, um, which makes me really sad. It makes me really sad that we can't just be kids and we can't just be students and, you know, just focusing on our homework. We also have to focus on, um, am I going to get harassed by my classmates or am I going to um, walk by this fraternity house and see a Make America Great Again sign. It makes me sad for us, but also it makes me realize that we are the strongest, most courageous, most resilient people, right? Like we as people of color, particularly for Black students, particularly for Indigenous students, like we're overcoming so much just by existing in this place that was never meant for us to be at. So that also, it, it makes me sad when I think about my experience at SMU and what it was for me and what it was for my friends to go through a process that made us feel really small at times. But also it makes me feel really, really proud that we went through an environment like that and we grew, we learned about advocacy, we learned how to advocate for ourselves. Um, and we got these degrees. Now we can use the education that we received to hopefully change institutions like SMU or preferably abolish all of them and start from the beginning. But, you know, whatever your cup of tea is. Now let's zoom in on that last part for a second. Start from scratch. Reform versus abolition. In the system change, out of the system change. We're always in the system. There's no system at all. What do we want? What's realistic? What's practical? What's our end goal? What needs to happen? It's a constant struggle among change makers. And we sort of briefly examined these ideas in our Greek life episode. 
we took a look at the facts and talked candidly about whether or not historically white Greek life could stand. But now, let's apply this logic to Southern Methodist University, an institution that, as we've established, was formed in the name of white supremacy. Here's J.J. Jones, the Executive Director of Student Development at SMU. We were doing um, this challenge within our division of uh, anti-racism challenge for 30 days. And during that, um, one of my colleagues mentioned, he's like, well, how do we fix it? How do we get this thing right? And I said, first of all, let's talk about what are you trying to fix? You can't, you can't fix something that was intentionally developed. It's not broken. This is the this was by design developed to run as it is. What what's going to change? People are not going to surrender their power. That's not going to happen, right? So it's like, how do you work within these confines, or what is? Because it was intentionally from the beginning, from the beginning, from the beginning of the kidnap. <laughs> it was intentionally designed to be that this will be this hierarchical thing. This is going to be over this. This is not. This is how it's going to work, and that's what we live and work in. So how do we live and work within that? Because this, I'm not going to give up the power. That's not going to happen. JJ is working within a reform framework, and she's not neglecting the fact that systemic racism is baked into the institution of SMU, and that when students and people of color are harmed, it's working the way it was intended. That's something that she and abolitionists agree about. But what she does with the information is different. She works with the knowledge that people don't cede their power. It's really hard to imagine a solution to this issue, but that doesn't mean that we stop working. We just do the best we can within a flawed system. You know, because and, and I believe this with all of my heart, you cannot change the heart in the minds of men. We do not have the power there, but I can make you think. And through that thought, maybe something will light up in you, some light bulb may come on, or you may rethink, or you may do something differently. I can't change your heart, but I can make you think. JJ has strong opinions about what should be, but all of that is ultimately trumped by what is. This is the interesting part about our nation, about any institution or organization. How you start a thing is sometimes even more important than how you end a thing. Because how you start a thing sets an intention, almost an energy, not to get spiritual here, but almost it creates an attitude or an energy that stays with it, and that's how we get institutional racism or systemic racism, because it's baked into the system. Intentions set at the beginning of a system inevitably influence the system as a whole. And so far, we've mainly centered this conversation on SMU-related things. But the most urgent and mainstream abolition conversations aren't necessarily happening about predominantly white higher education institutions. Abolition is about the police and the criminal legal system. So when we say the police department is not broken, it's actually acting just the way it was designed. To punish, 
and to brutalize people of color. That's how most police departments were created as slave patrols, especially in the South, uh, and to keep people in their place. Why am I talking about that? You asked me about SNU. Well, the institution of SNU was created out of racism. Some institutions that we invest our hopes, fears, and aspirations into have rotten roots. And some believe that we should stop investing in changing systems with these rotten roots, especially when the systems continue to bear the same poisonous fruit. You've likely heard the phrase, abolish the police. The American police system has indisputably racist origins. As Professor Jordan said, tracing back to fugitive slave patrols, when the police disproportionately wreck violence against communities of color, they are working in accordance with the intentions set at their origins. Professor Jordan goes on to draw the connection to SMU. You can hear in the first episode that Professor Jordan told us about the racist underpinnings of this university. So the argument goes that when students experience racism, that was the way that SMU was intended to function. SMU was expressly not built for students of color to attend, and that legacy continues today. But we know this all in theory. The question comes back to what do we do about this? When you dream of freedom, when you dream of liberation, what do you see happening next? Abolitionists are incredibly concerned about what is, but ultimately, the concern returns to what should be. When I was researching for this episode, I thought that there is an important thread to follow between SMU and the police. Two institutions with indisputably racist origins that are continuing to wreak disproportionate harm on communities of color. And let me be clear, I understand that the danger that people in carceral systems and people in academic institutions face are very different in nature, but I think it's worth exploring nonetheless. So I went to the heads of these institutions in an SMU context. I'm Gerald Turner, president of SMU. I'm Jim Walters. I'm the chief of police at SMU. Both of these men were present during a crisis in their institution. For Jim Walters, it was the murder of George Floyd. For President Turner, it was the recurring movement of hashtag Black at SMU. And sure, neither of them were personally responsible for these respective incidents but they were and are continually responsible for reckoning with it. So I asked them some similar questions. So in a personal capacity, how did you react to these deaths and the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement? I, I, I was outraged by the murder of George Floyd. I, I remember where I was at, what I was doing uh, when I first saw it. I was absolutely outraged and not as a cop, but as a citizen. Two days after George Floyd's murder, I brought every member of my police department into the indoor performance center and talked about that case. You know, and, and um, 
I, I have, you know, I've never been shy about saying that Black Lives Matter. So right off the bat, Chief Walters finds it important to say that Black Lives Matter. And further, Chief Walters saw the murder of George Floyd outside the context of bad cops as individual actors. He saw the implications of this national event on SMU students. In addition to just the, the crime of murder that you witness, look what they do to us as a society. My biggest fear, my, my, my biggest fear as the chief of police at SMU is that I have a black student, a brown student, or whoever, that is in danger or has been victimized, but they're afraid to call the police because they fear us. And things like the murder uh, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others, that causes that type of situation. I've had students tell me, well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't call the police on that. You know, I don't want the police there. And if I can't, change what is happening in the hometown they came from. And some of our students came from areas with a lot of problems. But our job is to make this little bubble a safety zone for them. But when things like that happen, that just damages all of us and everything we're trying to do. And it's, it's infuriating. Expounded on the individual experiences of SMU students of color, with SME PD and like you said, their personal experiences back home. Right. What bearing does this have on the trust between SME PD and the community? You live your life based on your life experiences, right? And so if your life experiences with the police and, 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 and you don't ever have to have been profiled uh, beaten or anything by an officer, but if that is what your family, friends, acquaintances, or what you see in the media, it's your experience. So your expectations are based on your experience. And in the only way that we can change that is by creating a positive experience between those students and my officers. We're one of the highest trained police departments in the United States. You know, we have very strict disciplinary policies in regards to bias and, and so forth. None of that matters until we connect on that human level. It's not the job of our students to, well, you got to get to know and learn more about the police department. It's the other way around. Walters and SMUPD aren't responsible for the murder of George Floyd. But Walters finds that the burden is on them to handle the repercussions. He finds it incumbent on the department to forge interpersonal connections in the community and create reparative experiences with students. So what I was thinking when I was conducting these interviews is, George Floyd had this major public implication on the police and in turn SMU Police Department. So the equivalent to that I found was hashtag Black at SMU, the student movements that drew all sorts of publicity and interest and backlash to SMU. 
So in the same way that Jim Walters isn't personally responsible for the death of George Floyd, President Turner isn't personally responsible for the instances of racism that people tweeted about at the hashtag Black at SMU. But nevertheless, it has implications on the institution that he stands for. So just like Jim Walters, I was deliberate about asking President Turner about his personal response to hashtag Black at SMU. Over the summer of 2020, hashtag Black at SMU trended on Twitter amidst the resurgence that we're talking about. So in a personal capacity, how did you react to these stories that students reported? When things started happening in 2015, uh, and there were some social media comments and so on, I immediately told our vice president that I want to I meet with every African-American student that has an office in anything. So President Turner went on to talk at length about the development of cultural intelligence initiative at SMU, and he considered the events of summer 2020 really important and a great opportunity for cultural intelligence initiative, bio-supporting systems, and all these other things that were built for students of color to get broad-based buy-in from people who weren't personally affected, which is, of course, to say white people. Because the comments that were coming out, a lot of them uh, that were quoted were, I mean, there were some overt racism things, but a lot of it was ignorance and a lot of it was uh, not having any acquaintance with a person of color, where you would know uh, what was offensive and what wasn't and what your assumptions were and so on. As far as President Turner characterizing these comments as pure ignorance, I urge you to scroll through the hashtag Black at SMU and decide for yourself. She, she and, and I wanted to develop some way to begin to get everyone under a common umbrella of learning without there being accusers and, and those being accused. And so just to discuss the vicissitudes of human existence as, as they really relate to people of color. We can scream and yell and do a lot of things, but if you want systemic change, then systemic change is what, frankly, I'm interested in. I, I want the place to be better when I leave it and it not to be better over the next three months and then resort back to what it was. So I can't speak to the experience of being a university president or an administrator, but I can speak to being a human rights student. And as a human rights student, I'm trained to follow the power. Then I'm trained to follow where the power ends up putting the burden of fixing problems created by power. So there is a complicated needle to thread. The higher ups can't speak to the black student experience, but Asking black students to solve other students' problems can be oppressive in itself. It places the burden on students like Lexi, who talks more at length about this in No Justice, No Peace. But President Turner did not express that he was conscious of this burden. He goes as far as to ask black students to recruit other black students to bolster their collective concerns and generate the change that they desire. This whole movement starting in 2015 and then accelerated this summer, uh, we have uh, tried very hard to, to increase that number. And it's important that minority students 
help in that regard. And sometimes that, I know there are a few minority students that may irritate, say, well, I'm not happy here. Why should I recruit others here? Well, help us make you happy here, you know, <laughs> because we can't recruit uh, other students uh, from different ethnic backgrounds if the ones who are here uh, aren't in some way involved with helping us do that. And you can hold this in contrast to Police Chief Walter's inclination to put the burden on the police to educate or create reparative experiences with the community. So you can see these as oppositional approaches. So asking students of color to recruit other students of color is a method that some take issue with. Here's Jessica Pierce-Jankosi again. I remember one year there was a Black at SMU banquet that I went to and RGT, the president of SMU, he spoke to the group and one of the things he said was, you know, tell Black students to come to SMU, you know, like y'all have to go out and communicate to them that this is a place where they can come and yada yada. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, SMU, and I think this is a problem for university structures as a whole, focus so much on recruiting students of color, recruiting black students, recruiting brown students, um, but they do not devote any time, any money on retention. It's just not a priority to them. So, so then you have students who don't feel welcomed and they transfer. SMU lives another day and really genuinely does not care. And there is some truth to what Jessica is saying. Throughout our interview, President Turner emphasized enrollment, but there's a little bit of a superficial quality I found to the way President Turner described attracting black students. He talked a lot about optics and putting people of color in visible positions. I believe it is so important to get them here, but that requires also uh, people seeing individuals that look like them on campus. And so I think it's very important in students, student affairs that Dr. K.C. Mejay is the vice president and that the dean of admissions is uh, uh, Elena Hicks, uh, African-American also, and that many of the people who are in student affairs uh, are minorities. We, we have a harder time uh, attracting uh, African-American faculty, but so do every other uh, private university. And so our numbers generally are comparable to other private universities like us. There's some ahead of us, some behind us, but we're always trying to, to do more and always working to do more. Let's zero in on that last point because that's completely relevant to the idea of systemic racism and abolition. Faculty of color significantly benefit the performance and retention of students of color across ages according to a Brookings Institution study. Accordingly, seeing representation in the classroom is critically important. But Professor Jordan illuminated a part of the academic process that perpetuates systemic racism in school, which feeds the pipeline of white professors into tenure positions. To act affirmatively or to actively recruit professors or other staff members of color Sometimes the pushback is, oh, it's just a hand me out. It's a handout, right? The president of ESPN or the CEO of ESPN, you know, was pushing for diversity. And when his folks asked 
do you want the best candidate or do you want the diverse candidate? He said, yes, I want a highly qualified one and I also want a one of color because it makes us stronger and it makes us better. What faculty members of color and women faculty members have experienced since the civil rights movement and the women's movement of the late 60s into the 70s is that in academia, there's kind of a hierarchy of what is considered to be academic, right? What is what academically rigorous? You know, it's kind of it's kind of a stuck up industry or vocation. It really is. It can be kind of snooty. And so we had women wanting to study issues that affected women. And we have communities and, and scholars of color wanting to study and teach and research things that affected their community, whether it's the South Asian community or the African American community or the Latinx community, etc. And when they come, you can hire them, but then there's this process called tenure on the faculty side of things. And you have to sit before a panel or a committee of your peers and present your research interests and the things that you're working on. And I have seen it personally in the last 10 years where we were high, we, I was at UC Arlington at that time, and we were hiring a new chairperson for the department. And she came, one of the candidates, and she was a Native American, and she was a Native American scholar of a Native American history and culture. And she was presenting, and part of her research was critical race theory. Well, there was this professor who raised his hand in her presentation, basically her job interview, and said, what is this critical race theory? I don't know what this thing is. And basically poo-pooed or looked down upon or devalued or diminished her work because she was studying race. And it was not seen as academic enough. I agree. Representation matters. In media, TV, and in the classroom, in government, in positions of authority, people of color like to walk in and see people represented who look like them, who have similar experiences. But that's only half of it. The other half is changing the culture, and that's more difficult. Changing the culture of an academic institution that doesn't somehow create a hierarchy, so that if you have a South Asian scholar who wants to study the experiences of South Asian women in any particular group, that they can present that research and SMU would be a place who welcomes that kind of academic inquiry and not look at it as substandard because she's not studying white folks, so, you know, or European stuff. So that's the culture that needs to change. So yes, yes, we need academics of color, but we also need to create a culture that where they feel welcome and their research is, is, is promoted and honored and valued in the same way. I'm a South Asian student. I'm not black or indigenous. I'm not suffering the brunt of this issue. But as I experience the simultaneous privileges and oppressions of my race, the complexities of what I think I'm capable of fall short when I never see black or brown professors. I get the impression that I will never be as valuable for studying my own experience as my white peers studying theirs. So one of the final points on reform versus abolition, 
I just straight up asked the chief of police about abolition. The criminal justice system as a whole suffers from uh, uh, systemic uh, racism and injustice. The overall system, very much so. I, I don't believe that abolishing the police is the the answer because there is the 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 downside of that. Right, the, this campus and that presidential library is one of the top 25. Uh, terrorist targets in the United States. You don't have police and somebody comes to do bad, what happens? What I do believe is that we have police officers doing things that they were neither trained, equipped, or qualified to do mental health situations, minor crimes, you know, things that, you know, are nuisance that, that you don't need the cops for that. So there's been a lot of talking, a lot of sort of arguments being put forth, conflict, both sides. So I'm going to show my cards. I'm an abolitionist. I believe that the police and prisons and the criminal legal system don't have a place in the good society. And making this podcast has been in service of that mission. Historical remembrance, to me, is a part of the abolitionist imperative. And so is building these relationships, having these discussions, giving folks a platform to talk about what they've been through. I think we have to stretch our imaginations and imagine a world beyond violence, beyond cops and criminals and good and bad. And I think that we have all that we need to build that world within ourselves, within our communities, within our collective consciousness. And I see it. I know that it seems like a big stretch of the imagination to believe that people are going to drop their arms and commit to taking care of each other. But I think not dreaming at all is much more costly than dreaming big. If we don't preserve life on earth, take care of each other, and imagine a better world for future generations that we have not yet already seen. Everything is at stake. So, for the last time, let's shift it back to SMU. Here's me and JJ. SMU was conceived to be an instrument of white supremacy, to maintain Southern conservatism, to allow students to congregate together. So the SMU that is now, like, is so contrary to the founder's vision, just as America now is so contrary to the founder's vision. And that's what you're working against. That's what you're working against, because you guys, in the psyche of people, like, oh my God, what this is, is this supposed to be how this works? It's just a con. It's a contradiction. It's a mind shape, mind change, and mind shift. And there's a lot that you have to peel back the onion. Some folks don't want the onion to be peeled back because of the realizations that they will find. And it's to the core. Like it's to your core. But you know, until we are willing to totally peel back that onion, show the re- release the core, and work at that, we're gonna just continue to just make these little, you know, the new, the needle is being moved, but it's being moved. And then sometimes it's like, you know how you scratch the record? You probably don't know about record. Back <laughs> so we had record. That's the record to start all over. Like, it's just, yeah. SMU community members of color collectively bear a pain that white students don't. 
and I continually wonder if it's worth it. I continually wonder if I can ethically recommend SME to prospective students of color. Sometimes it physically hurts to know the legacy of capital R racism on this campus. Build it and they shall come. If there is more of a critical mass of students of color, if we organized better, if we built better coalitions, then in the logic of those in power, things would improve for us. But I reject this. I reject the false binary that the student of color experience can only improve when we increase enrollment numbers. I reject the notion that students of color ought to be the architects of our fate. But of course we are over and over again. We are the ones that hold this institution accountable Black students, faculty, and alumni groups spent the summer of 2020 drafting demands lists and action plans for the university. Members of Black Unity Forum further distilled the needs of numerous interest groups to accommodate SMU administrators. None of these leaders were compensated for their time and emotional labor, for being brave, for telling the traumatic truth during a traumatic summer, and providing solutions. Fearing apathy at best and backlash at the worst from the people in power. So sure, maybe no one paid anyone, but there was an unbelievable cost. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we start over from scratch? Or can we fix this? In the winter of 2020, the SME Human Rights Council brought the preeminent Black feminist scholar, activist, Angela Davis. She is the mother of modern abolition movements. And I got the chance to ask her one question. Your teaching career spans across a wide range of colleges and universities of varying institutional legacies. Taking your experiences into account, I would love to hear your perspective on the role of predominantly white institutions. Can PWIs serve a positive function distinct from the Eurocentrism, racism, and elitism that characterizes their origin? Um, well, yeah, I mean, you're right. I've uh, been involved um, in predominantly white institutions educational institutions as a student, um, as, a, as a professor. So I, um, I have to answer that question um, in the affirmative. Uh, but I'm, I'm not saying that the institutions themselves take the initiative to resist and you know, challenge uh, the, the racism and the um, heteropatriarchal structures uh, that are so um, integral a part of the way the university itself is, um, is organized. But I do think that students, I think that staff, we were talking about the fact that the that the university community goes beyond the students and the professors. Uh, it in, it involves staff. It involves workers. Uh, that it is possible to 
um, forge uh, um, traditions of resistance and struggle. And I want to emphasize the importance of education, the importance of intellectual work. Uh, uh, intellectual work, I'm not only referring to intellectual work that happens on the campuses. One of the things um, I try to teach my university students is that knowledge gets produced in many places and we have to be respectful of that, of the knowledge that gets produced um, uh, in the community, uh, uh, in, 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 in the course of struggle, uh, the knowledge that gets produced in prison. In encouraging this kind of approach, uh, faculty and students, students should challenge their uh, professors if the professor is not willing to engage in a, um, a serious intellectual conversation about the structural nature of racism. So I think that that uh, the, uh, the contributions will come from students, the contributions will come from progressive and radical faculty, the contributions will come from other members of the community. Marginalized students are doing the bulk of the work to carry this campus into the good society. I say this with urgency and I say this because I care. If we want to assure the future of our university, the university that so many love, my white peers must maladjust. We cannot furnish this campus to accommodate racism. The burden cannot fall on students of color over and over again to construct their own community spaces that resist the very core of SMU. SMU must adjust to us. How you start a thing is sometimes even more important than how you end a thing. This podcast has been a platform for campus leaders to tell you the truth about SMU's relationship with race throughout its history. But the practice of maladjustment goes beyond bearing witness. I urge you to interrogate the ways that you may adjust to the systems of white supremacy in your own life. Believe the truth that people tell about themselves. And above all, be the people of goodwill that will realize Dr. King's good society. I think and I pray that we're at a, a, a critical moment. I feel the wind blowing, right? I feel us shifting as a nation, and I'm very, very happy about that. Monuments falling all over the country, uh, you know, we're reprioritizing how we fund the police. I mean, this is a moment and we, we don't need to sweep on it. We need to take advantage of this moment that we're being given. And I believe SMU, as well as any other institution that sees themselves living way into the future for another hundred years, cannot do that until it reckons with race. I don't think there's any institution alive today that will make it another hundred years if they don't do this work. I think we are shifting as a, as a global community to where this crap just is not acceptable. White supremacy is just not acceptable. Centering whiteness in absolutely everything is irrelevant. That we must make a concerted effort to diversify the, what we offer and who we are 
and, and the sensibilities of how we do business in the world. And I don't think SMU will make it 100, another 100 years if it doesn't, which is why I think we see lots of organizations trying to speak out, trying to get ahead of the curveball. Because it's just bad for business if they don't. So now to say thank you. Brad, you made all of this possible. Thank you. To people that constantly inspire me, Ethan Gerwitz, Maddie Hanratty, Bethany Bass, Nia Kamau, Lamisa Mustafa, and the SMU Human Rights Program. Thank you, Ray Jordan, Layla Gully, Demarcus Allen, Lexi Quinton, Jessica Pires Jankosi, Spiro Caldwell, and family. Angel Sanders, Jennifer Jones, Brady Martin, Jill Kelly, John Georges, Jerry Levias, Jim Walters, President Turner, Kelsey Hodge, Bree Tolley, Ashton Woods, Rene Martinez, Chad Lazari, Zane Dodd, Shahan, Barbie, Prashan, Winter, Mom, Dad, and everyone who allowed themselves to be moved by this podcast. You all give me hope. There are some things in our nation and the world which I'm proud to be maladjusted, which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good societies realize.